Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning, Locksport. Good morning, Yaram. Hope it's nice and warm where you are. I've got the heaters cranked. It's warming up in the building here. It does take a little while sometimes on these cold mornings. Fantastic. Who's a, who's a winter person? Any people like hanging out for winter? Like, why do we live here? Why do we do it? Why? Oh dear. I've heard that it's going to be a long, I mean not long, a hot, dry winter. I'm claiming that promise from the meteorologists. I think that would be great. Cold nights but warm days. I like looking at the weather, so um, if, it, if it happens, you can say, well, I heard it first from Brad. If it doesn't, just pretend you didn't hear it at all. Hey, we're in John chapter 2 this morning. We are up to week number 6 in John. Have you been enjoying going through the book of John? Some people, yep. Great. Well, I hope you have because we're in it for a long time. <laughs> we're up to chapter 2 of 22? 21. I should know that. I can't remember all my numbers. John 2, 12 to 25 this morning, we're looking at a, a, the second half of John chapter 2. So last week we looked at Jesus at the wedding in Cana, turning water into wine. Uh, you remember this story, he's got the six big ceremonial jars and they fill it with water to the brim, he pours it out, wine comes out. Uh, and then John, in his authorship, putting these stories together, is very different to the other three Gospels. He chucks this story in next. Um, in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, the story of Jesus cleansing the temple, turning the tables over, which we're going to look at this morning, happens at the end of Jesus' ministry. But here John puts it at the start. And so I'll let you do some homework if you want to figure out if it's a separate event, if it's the same event, but John's just chosen to put it in a different space, um, or if it's just something else. Um, I'm not going to go into that this morning, that's, that's up to you if you're really interested in that. Um, but let's read it anyway, John chapter 2, verses 12 to 25, it says this, after this, after the wedding, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there only a few days and the Jewish Passover was near and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem and in the temple he found people selling oxen, sheep and doves and he also found the money changers sitting there. And after making a whip out of cords or reeds, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. And he also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And therefore the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build and you'll raise it up in three days? They're sort of having a go at Jesus there, they're like, who do you think you are? But he was speaking about the temple of his body and so when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. And while he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. And Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them, since he knew them all, 
And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in a man. So God, we come uh, again this morning just in a, in a state of surrender and humility, asking that you would teach us and transform us and change us by your word. We pray that you would help us to, to lean into your spirit and all that you are wanting to speak into our hearts this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing about me is that I'm someone who is easily distracted, um, so much so that sometimes I'll be doing a job around the house and I'll put something down that I was doing, say, uh, the broom, I'll put that down somewhere because I see something else, pick up that thing and then go put that away and then find something else to do and then wonder who put the broom out and why, why I'm in the kitchen. Um, and then I'm in the kitchen so I think I oh, may as well eat, I'm here and then the cycle goes on, uh, dishes to do, broom to get out, anyway. Uh, I'm someone who's easily distracted one thing and to the next and, uh, and there's no coherence sometimes to the, the tasks that are happening. And, and you can read this story in, in John chapter 2 of the wedding in Cana and then after this he goes to the temple and starts throwing tables over and go, these are just like, what is going on here? One thing I love about John's Gospel is the, the intention of the Spirit at work in, the, in the, the order of the words and the order of events and the way John has put this together. And so what I want us to see a bit this morning is that this story of the, the wedding in Cana where Jesus comes and turns water into wine and then goes to the temple and overthrows the tables are meant to be together. They're meant to be together, and, and I want you to see why they're together and what we can learn about that this morning. You know, verse 12, it says, After this, he went to Capernaum, together with his mother, his brothers, his disciples, and they, he stayed a few days. After this, seemingly completely different events. At one, he, at the wedding, he's like the party, party maker. He's like, we need more wine. Let's, let's keep this party going. Let's have fun. And then at the temple, he's like the party pooper. He's, this is terrible. Let's throw everything out. Get everyone out of here. This is no good. At one, he's sort of like quiet, unassuming. He's not making a, a deal about himself. He's, he's sort of in the background, nowhere to be seen. And then at one, at the temple, he's up front and centre, dramatic, loud, boisterous, making a scene, making people's attention on himself. One, there's like joy and celebration and happiness, and at one, there's anger and disappointment and sadness and frustration. At one, he is adding, and at one, he is taking away. At one, he is asked to help, and at the other, he's not. He just barges in. At one, he's bringing comfort, and he's gentle. At one, he's disturbing and disrupting all that's going on. And so this is the big idea that I want you to see this morning and think about, that Jesus fills your table, but sometimes he turns your table. Sometimes he fills your table and sometimes he turns your table. Sometimes he's pouring out more wine. Sometimes he's bringing life and bringing joy. He's filling your cup. At other times he comes in and he turns it all over. And this morning, I want us to notice the, the similarities in these stories and, and around two ideas. One is authority, the authority that Jesus has, and one is the outcome that he brings. You can see through 
John's Gospel, we've talked about this a few times already, but belief in Jesus is the outcome that John wants his readers to have. Belief that Jesus is the Messiah. Remember in John 20, Jesus performed many other signs uh, in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by, by believing you may have life in his name. At the end of the story in the, uh, at the wedding, the disciples believed because of what Jesus did. And here we see, and we'll come back to it, but um, in verse 23, many believed in his name when he, he saw the signs he was doing. Uh, verse 22, when he was raised from the, the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture. So you see the, the intent of what John is trying to drive at is that we will see the different signs of Jesus and that we will believe in him. We'll believe in him. And so the first one, the first um, similarity I want to look at is this idea of authority. Authority, action, then reason. I'll explain this a little bit. So Jesus comes into the temple and maybe you can picture the scene. He comes in and you can see on his face the, the shock maybe, the disappointment, the outrage, the confusion of what have I walked into? What is going on here? And immediately he finds some reeds and starts cracking a whip, like literally cracking a whip getting as much noise and commotion going, driving all the sellers of the animals out and the money changers out. And it wasn't um, that they, what they were doing was wrong. You have to understand in, in that time when they went to the temple, people needed to bring a sacrifice to the priest. And a lot of these people were coming from hundreds of kilometres away, travelling in, and so there was... It was it was impractical for anyone to bring their own oxen or sheep or dove that far. Some of them were travelling uh, from Spain, they were, and so they were coming with different currencies, and they needed to bring the temple coin to pay their temple tax. I mean, we could go into the temple tax and um, talk about that, but we won't this morning. Maybe we should have a, a church tax. We like taxes, don't we? Um, and so what the... The things that were happening in the temple weren't out of place. They weren't terrible things to be happening. They were good things, but they were, had lost their way. And so Jesus comes in and he sees what's happening and he just turns the tables over without any explanation to start with. And he does this because he has authority. Even at the wedding, Jesus has authority. You know, when... Mary goes to Jesus, Jesus, they've slight problem here, they've run out of wine, can you help? And Jesus says, my hour's not yet come. And, and, and one of the things he's saying to Mary and his, his mum at that point is, you're not in charge, I'm in charge of when I die. Because he hears wine and he thinks his death, he thinks his blood poured, his blood poured out, his, the, the wine of the new covenant. And so he says, my hour's not yet come, it's not up to you to tell me when the wine's coming, it's up to me. And, and, but then he goes and does the miracle anyway. But he, you see that he has authority in that moment in the wedding in Cana, but here his authority is displayed in a slightly different, um, slightly different way, isn't it? He's walking in and he's, I'm in charge here, this is not on, get out. And he clears, you know, dozens of people, hundreds of people, who knows, And this idea of Jesus' authority is a hard one for us to always lean into because we like 
the Jesus that fills our cup. We like the Jesus that when we go to him, we say, Jesus, I need something, and then he does it for us. We're like, yes, you have the authority. But when he comes in and he disrupts our life, flips our tables over, jars something in us, in our heart, we go, oh, I don't know if I like that Jesus as much. I'm happy that you have the authority to do anything you want, but I'm not so happy for you to have the authority to do all that you want. One of our values here at SBC is that we are truth seekers, pursuing Jesus wherever he takes us. Wherever he takes us. And sometimes when we're pursuing Jesus, sometimes when we're allowing him to have the authority, we can see why. We can understand the reason. But there are often times where we can't. And the idea that Jesus has authority, they have to, the, the idea that he can fill our cup, the idea that he can give us the good things and, and change situations has to go hand in hand, that he has the authority to change situations that we don't understand and that we don't know about. If he has the ability to, to make wine from water, he has the ability to know something we don't, to understand something that we could not wrap our head around. And so when it comes to the authority of Jesus, the authority of Scripture, the authority of what he asks us to do, sometimes we can't understand, sometimes we can't know. And what Jesus would want us to do is just to let him turn our table and then maybe we'll find out a little bit of the reason. But maybe just part of the reason is that he wants to turn your table so that you'll know he's in charge. And that's the only reason, maybe that's it. He wants you just to give up something, surrender something, not because there's any particular purpose other than that you're obeying him and you're going where he wants. Sometimes we can see why, other times we can't see why, sometimes we can understand, other times we can't, but nonetheless we pursue him. We take his lead. So when he comes in flipping tables, we don't go, whoa, 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 I can justify this action, I can justify this Look, people need the doves, people need the oxen, people need to change their coins, like it's very practical and you can imagine the people in the temple going, oh, I didn't think it was that bad. And maybe it wasn't to begin with. Maybe when they first started out, they were just outside the temple and they were just like, yeah, this will be helpful for people to be able to bring their worship, bring their sacrifice, connect with the, the holy God, bring their prayer. And then, oh, it's a bit cold. Oh, who knows the situation? It was a bit cold or they have to carry the oxen too far to the altar. Maybe it would just be easier if we're just, in the, just inside the front door. Oh, we may as well just set up shop right next to the altar. It would be easier. They can buy their oxen, to kill it on their way. Happy days. You can imagine that the, maybe it didn't start right next to the altar. Maybe it slowly moved its way. And then Jesus comes in and says, this is all wrong. This is all wrong. He'll, sometimes Jesus will come in, uh, he'll flip the table, he'll point out something that is, he doesn't love, that's getting in the way of something that he really does love. You see that the idea of the sacrifice, the idea of bringing the animals was a surrender of heart, a remembering of there is wrong, there is sin in my life and this blood is covering my sin and there is grace at the altar. There is forgiveness at the altar. And it had turned into just a, a ritual, a religious duty. It's like, I just, 
come in to Jerusalem. I bring my, bring my money, buy my oxen, kill it, go on, I'm all good. Hello, kids. Good, isn't it? For those on Locksport and Yarram, we just can hear the kids having a great time next door. It's fantastic. Sometimes there's, though, there's, there's no reason for God to turn a table and other than the reason that he is God and he wants you to know that he is and that you're not God. Sometimes that's the only reason. So Jesus has authority. He has the authority. And then the outcome, let's have a look at this quickly. Zeal for the house. Um, so when he came, comes in flipping the tables, the disciples remember... They remember something about the Old Testament. They said, wasn't there a time where zeal for the house will consume me? God said that, didn't he? Zeal for the house will consume me. And this is what is going on here. Jesus' heart for the house, heart for the temple is consuming him. And so let's think about this for a moment. Jesus, what he says though in verse 6, is he says, get these things out of here. Get all the, get the marketplace, the hoo-ha out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace, my father's house. You know, when Jesus walked into the temple, his frustration grew because of the greed that he saw. A lot of commentaries will agree on this, that there was an element of greed that was happening in this marketplace situation, that people were coming in and they were being taken advantage of. It's like, we can make some money here and what's more important or what's our biggest priority is that we make the money. We change the coin, we sell the animals. Like, we don't really care about the altar, the sacrifice. I mean, that's why people are doing it, but we're greedy. People were more concerned about money than they were worship. More concerned about what they could get than what they could give. Matthew 6 says this about money. He says, No one can serve two masters since he will either hate one and love the other. He will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And I think this is a challenge for us today. It doesn't look like selling sheep down the front here. Thank goodness for that. It's far more subtle than that. Is our heart consumed with love for what God loves, love for himself, love for God himself, or love of what we can get when we come to the temple. When you walk out of the building today, are you thinking, oh, that was a bit average, I didn't like this, I didn't get much out of that? Or are you thinking, what can I bring to God this morning? What is my act of worship? What is my act of surrender? What is my sacrifice this morning? It's two completely different mindsets, isn't it? One, you're coming in, what can I get? What's in it for me? And one comes in, what's in it for him? What can I bring the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe? What can I bring? What offering can I bring? What worship can I bring? What sacrifice can I bring? I mean, you'll receive all that you need as you do that, but the motivation is very different. The heart is very different. If you come in saying, I didn't like that, I didn't, didn't get much out of this, I didn't appreciate that, I reckon Jesus might come into your heart a little bit and flip your table and say, you've got things a little bit backwards here. You've forgotten what 
the altar is really about, what the house of God is really about. It's a place of prayer. It's a place of coming to me, to bring me glory, to bring me honour. Worship is about giving. It's about surrendering all that you have. And so in real practical terms, you can look at the way in which you give of yourself. Not only on a Sunday morning, but 24-7. How you give your time, how you give your money, both show what's most important to you. What you value most, you'll make the most sacrifice and allowance for. This was true in the temple. The money changers and sellers, I'm sure, didn't first set up shop next to the altar. It just gradually became more convenient because they were getting more and more out of it. The sacrifice of reverence was slowly made until the reverence was just gone. I reckon over the last few years, with COVID, this has happened for a lot of us as Christians as well. There was a big disruption and then there was a lot of changes that were made in terms of our time and our money. And for good reasons, some not so good. And as we've gone forward from that, some of us have just kept those selfish changes. I'll just keep a bit more of my money, I'll just keep a bit more of my time. Now, I want you to hear this this morning, that the challenge is not for you to feel bad about yourself. That's not what Jesus wants you to do. But what do you love what Jesus loves? Notice at the end, in verse 25, Jesus says, uh, he did not need anyone to testify about man because he himself knew what was in a man. 1 Corinthians, Paul talk, I don't have this verse, but Paul talks about when you come and bring a, a sacrifice, when you bring a gift, do it with the right heart, do it with the right attitude. When we were looking at the Sermon on the Mount last year in in Matthew 5 to 7, Jesus was trying, I think one of the big things he was trying to get us to understand is that he's not so concerned with your action. He's concerned with the heart in which it's acted out of. You can be giving all the money in the world in the offering, but if your heart's not connected to it, Jesus would say, it's useless, it's, it's pointless. Jesus wants your heart. Jesus wants, and he, want, he wanted the temple, he wanted the people in the temple to remember why they were doing what they were doing, what it was all about. That it wasn't just a ritual, it wasn't a religious duty, there was something much bigger than that. Jesus is not after outward change, but an inward devotion that results in actions. Sometimes the actions help the heart, as in sometimes we can do things like, I don't feel like, singing, I don't feel like worshipping God, but I'm going to do it anyway. And then as I do that, as I obey that command, my heart will follow. Sometimes we can give someone money and think, I don't really like that person. But now I've given them money, I feel more connected to them. I feel more like that action uh, helps my heart. And sometimes that's, that's the case, that our, our actions help our heart. But sometimes the heart helps the action. Sometimes we can give and our heart isn't committed to it. But other times when we give, we think, I feel invested in what I'm giving towards. And so, again, another practical thing, if you don't feel connected to SBC, if you don't feel invested, can I ask how you're giving your your money and your time towards it? We're always, um, I mean, over the last couple of weeks anyway, we've been talking about our giving and uh, falling short of budget, we're asking for volunteers in different spaces and, and if you feel like you're not giving or you're not volunteering, you're not 
giving your time or your money to, to the house of God, then I would challenge you, what is Jesus saying to you about that? What is Jesus saying to you about that? Everyone who gives a little bit makes a big difference. Your little goes a long way in the kingdom. But of course, Jesus wasn't talking about the physical temple when he came in and turned... I mean, that wasn't what John was really... I mean, that was a part of the immediate issue. Like, last week we talked about Jesus turning water into wine and, I mean, practically speaking and immediately, Jesus just met a need and we can take that lesson away from it, that when you go somewhere and there's like, oh, they don't have enough food, I could, I could help here. You see a need and you obey the Holy Spirit to provide that need. Here we see that there's a, a surface-level application of what's happening in the house of God and are we keeping our minds and our hearts focused on that, but there's a much deeper level. John is like an onion with a million layers. And of course, when he's talking about the temple, he's talking about his body. He's showing us that what is really happening here is that you're going to come and you're going to just, you're going to destroy my body. But don't worry about that. Don't worry about what you destroy. I'm going to raise it up again. I mean, what a promise, what an act of love in that moment, which they didn't even understand. Like the new one at the wedding, it was better than the previous. John shows us here that the new temple, Jesus himself, is going to be better than the physical one. And he will raise it up. He was speaking in verse 21 about the temple of his body. So that when he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered. Ah, remember that time Jesus went in flipping tables and he said something about the temple being put back together in three days? Like, I didn't get it, but now, oh, it makes all the sense. And in fact, not only is the temple Jesus' body, but Scripture would go on to say, the Bible would go on to say that the temple is your body. The temple is what's happening in your heart. No longer is Jesus confined to, or the presence of God confined to an altar, to a physical building. But now the presence of God is carried with each and every one of us. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17 says, Don't you know, don't yourselves know that you are God's temple and the Spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy. And that is what you are. And so that's why Jesus cares about what's happening in your heart. He doesn't care about just what's happening with your hands. He cares about what's happening in your heart because you are holy. You are set apart for him. He lives inside you. You see, the temple is speaking more of than just the physical building, but the heart. He can see what's going on inside your heart, and he will come and turn it over. Because the temple, your heart is meant for worship and surrender to him alone. And so sometimes Jesus will fill your table and sometimes he turns your table. He'll fill your table and turn your table and do whatever he can for this purpose. Whatever he can to help your heart believe that he is God. Believe that he is the Messiah. Like in this story, the disciples remembered in verse 22 that he said this and they believed the scriptures. Like at the wedding, Jesus did this in verse 11, uh, the sign in Galilee, and he revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. The things that fill you and the things that disrupt you are both meant for Jesus' purpose, that you would see him. You see, Jesus' purpose in all things is that you might believe he is God. And if he is God, he demands and deserves full devotion and full surrender. 
He deserves all of who you are, all of what you have, the little things like the catering dilemma at a wedding and the big things like the temple of your heart. He deserves it all and everything in between. What you do with your time, what you do with your money, it's all for him and his glory. And so as we finish and, and we're going to uh, worship and take communion in a moment, Brock's going to lead us in communion in, in, in a few moments' time, I want us to begin to think about what's my, what's my motivation for being here this morning? Where's my heart? And for some of us, it means taking just a step of faith and saying, I'm just going to give. I'm going to give my worship. I'm going to give my voice. I'm going to give my hands in sacrifice this morning and, and lead my heart to where God wants it to be. And for some of us, we just need that, that conviction of the Holy Spirit inside of our heart. But I want us to stand, and I'd love to pray for us as we take this moment before God. Lord Jesus, we come before you this morning and we recognize that you have all authority. God, you are a, a king, you're a, you're a servant, you're a lord, you're a helper. And sometimes, God, we put you just into one category and we just want you to stay like that because it's more comfortable for us. But God, I pray this morning that we would let the fullness of God into our heart, the fullness of who you are, the bits that are easy and the bits that are hard, the bits that we understand and the bits that we don't. Because, God, we recognize that you are creator. You are Lord of all. God, would you look at our heart? Would you look at the temple of our heart and reveal the things that are, that are not where they should be? The areas in which we've set up a marketplace. Maybe it wasn't intended for a good thing, but it's just drifted into something that's not helpful. Would you show us those areas so that they could be turned over and reclaimed for your glory and your purpose. Would you help us to sacrifice all that we have and all that we are? Help us to be people that are not just good with the outward behaviours, but inwardly, holy, set apart for you. God, would you use these next few moments just to transform as only you can do. Holy Spirit, we surrender to you this morning, asking for your, your miracle in our heart, your transformation in our heart that would lead to your glory and lead to your purposes. Lord, we love you so much. We honour you so much. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus.